Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Well, here we are again. It's episode 15 of Sprogcast. This one's about breastfeeding. Your presenters are me, Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Hi, Karen. Hi, Mark. This episode is on a subject close to my heart. Um, I've been to the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers Conference and also amazingly had a chance to speak to researcher and author Maureen Minchin. Fantastic. I, I love that conference, has to be said. I've only been once, but a, a great supporter of uh, the ABM. Yeah, we'll chat about it later. It was heartwarming. I loved it. Oh, I bet it was. Uh, well, Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsors, Pinter and Martin, uh, an independent publishing company. They specialise in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. And you'll find them at pinterandmartin.com. Uh, of course, you'll find us at facebook.com slash Sprogcast. Do you know, I am starting to get a bit excited now about the 14th of July. We're going live, Karen. We are. We're having a live show. Come on, see know. us. It's free. It's free. Yeah, it's free. And it's truly free. And you'll get to have coffee and browse the books. And we've got some pretty... Pretty rocking people coming. We've got Natalie Meddings. We've got Dr. Amy Brown. We've got Rebecca Sheila. And, of course, we've got our own student midwife. I think she's qualified. Is she or is she about to? Well, Natalie, we're hoping to have her there, but she's actually caseloading. So oh, we so don't she, know. It's oh, almost so exciting in itself. So it? she might be out there being midwife. Anyway, yes. we're really excited about having Natalie Corden along as well. Yeah. Please get along. It is free and we'd love to meet you face to face. So 7.30 at EFRA Space and all the details are on our Facebook page and Pinter and Martin's Facebook page. Yeah, come along. So I went to the ABM conference and I've got a few um, short interviews from them coming up in a little while. But um, it did really focus the mind on um, the, the kind of cultural setting in which people, um, in which women are trying to breastfeed babies in yeah. this day and age. And particularly we're talking sort of about the UK here. Yeah. Because that's where we're at. And thinking about the challenges that face people not being just, you know, it, it can be a bit sore sometimes. Your baby's um, behavior might not meet your expectations. You might have um, that doubt that comes from um, the occasional mother-in-law. Um, sorry, mother's-in-law. I'm, that was terrible generalization. I'm sure most of them are lovely. Uh, and... <laughs> Um, it's more of it was more thinking about stop it. <laughs> uh, you're telling us too much about your personal life. What you have you got against your mother-in-law? I'm not going to discuss that on the radio. <laughs> Actually, we're talking more about the cultural setting, the fact that um, breastfeeding works so well. The command, the mechanics of breastfeeding, as Maureen mentioned, said, don't fail easily unless you interfere with the basic um, mechanisms but society itself I think does interfere with the basic mechanisms in so many ways and that's what we're talking about today. Yeah yeah I, I, I guess society cultural conditioning all of those things uh, inhibit uh, the mechanisms which are which we've said again and again and again are rooted in uh, we've got to believe fail-safe evolutionary mechanisms because you know it's we wouldn't be here, would we, Karen? I do say that a lot. I know, but we wouldn't. You know, it, it really is. It never ceases to amaze me that, uh, you know, Men, Love and Birth, that, that book by uh, by Mark Harris. Oh, that's me. Uh, the, the bit of it that got the most uh, flack 
was the risks of not breastfeeding. Yeah, now you would have enjoyed talking to Maureen Minchin. It's a shame you didn't get the opportunity to um, because she's very uncompromising on this. And her whole um, talk that I went to was very much about formula, not just as something that's lacking, but actually as something that fundamentally changes gene expression. Oh, and I loved it when I heard it. I mean, I've had a, I've had a preview and you've got a treat coming up because there is so much in that interview that, that, that needs to be discussed widely. I, I was inspired by the stuff um, she spoke about obesity and people that are carrying uh, more weight, um, which is is part of a formula feeding heritage as much as it is to do with their choices in the moment. And that's powerful. Yeah. And that's relevant to the news that, that's come out this morning, isn't it? I don't know if you've been listening to the radio at all, but um, there have been reports about a prediction that by um, in, in 20 years time, 40 percent of the population will be obese. Well, I haven't heard that, but that that's in think that's in keeping with a lot of thinking around um uh, weight gain um the the obesity thing is really interesting because every time there are cuts to a breastfeeding service and sort of twin headlines to that warning about this obesity crisis and nobody in government ever seems to join those dots together and yet it's proven there is evidence that more longer duration of breastfeeding is linked with um normal body types body shapes and and an ability to you know, control your appetite and all these things that were going to help to reduce cases of obesity. Absolutely. And the interview that you guys out there are going to hear shortly, um, she suggests there's a class action waiting to happen. I should be very interested to see that. Very interesting. And you can you can make that logical connection when you realise that formula companies are themselves realising that, for example, protein levels have been too high in in their formula because they they can see it they can see it coming you know it's like mcdonald's starting to shift to you know having salads available on their menu and stuff like that because they were getting worried about the very same kind of legal action so uh, it would be a good it would be a good day for the longevity of breastfeeding if it happened i think yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's a marketing element to that as well with McDonald's, which I suppose doesn't apply to the formula companies. No, mm. you're right. Shall we put Maureen's interview here since we've teased it so many times? Yeah, let's get it in because it's a, it's one of the best interviews we've done, without a doubt, in terms of content <laughs> and way it's structured. Although there's a lot of outside bird noise and some plates and things. Have a listen. So um, I've just listened to a talk with Maureen Minchin and she's agreed to talk to me for a few minutes afterwards, which is really kind of you. Thank you. Um, for those listeners who don't know you and aren't familiar with your work, although I can't imagine there are any, um, would you like to just introduce yourself? Well, how can you introduce yourself? Let's see. I suppose I'm an infant feeding advocate. I've been concerned about issues of infant feeding since I had children 40 years ago and I've read and researched and taught health professionals around the world um, on these issues and have just published what I think is a really important groundbreaking book called Milk Matters. Yes, which you have some copies of here. Can you tell us what the book's about and what's in it? Well, the book is 
really trying me trying to download my brain 40 years of reading the scientific literature has convinced me that the infant formula invasion of western communities actually is responsible for much of the disease that we call non-communicable i see that as having been vertically communicated by the compounding intergenerational damage that begins with exposing a very young infant to unsuitable foods like bovine milk formulas or fortifiers or other products that no human was ever meant to eat. So you're seeing that I think what you called um, the exposure to alien foods for infants being something that has an effect going um, not just through one lifetime but generation after generation. Yes because each generation gestates the next and in fact there's very good genetic and epigenetic evidence that in fact um, you are not only what you ate um, or what your mother ate but also that you are what your grandmother ate because the egg that was going to be you was started inside your mother's body inside your grandmother's womb and was affected by that gestation and then by how your mother was fed then by your mother gestating you then by how you were fed so it's a multi-dimensional problem that is going to be difficult to research but which in clinical practice shows up very very clearly as a cause of a huge amount of distress in this generation who often blame themselves for problems that in fact were created two generations ago all unwittingly by the very poor management of breastfeeding that was absolutely normal in many western hospitals. Mm, Difficult to research but also very difficult to change. No, actually not so difficult to change. You have to accept that where you are is where you are. Um, But for the next generation, there is good evidence that in fact, if you can manage the early stages of uh, afterbirth really well by keeping babies skin to skin with both parents or grandparents and by making sure that they get nothing except human milk in that first period when the gut is just being colonised, well, in fact, there is some colonisation before birth, but as the, the colonisation after birth gets going and the microbiome starts to develop, there's good evidence that the microbiome of breastfed infants is going to have a really positive effect on their development, and that's what we're trying to protect. Um, so combination of exclusive breastfeeding, as WHO recommends, truly exclusive breastfeeding, and um, also uh, lots of physical skin contact to communicate the normal microbiome biome of the family and in fact you'll probably have a much healthier baby and in subsequent generations it's taken generations to breed in the the damage that I see I think that it'll probably take some generations to breed it out but we know from plant studies and other things that the epigenetic marks that are caused by poor nutrition or by whatever the the stressor is do disappear if they're no longer needed Um, the, the damage that formula does is both genetic and epigenetic um, but the epigenetic marks will start to disappear how soon any one family will revert to being truly healthy I think is hard to assess but that we can improve things in the future I think is not without it's quite undoubted I liked what you said about milk as a bridge from the womb to the world yes it is meant to be a bridge from the womb to the world the more you know about human milk The more complex and interesting the story is, each mother makes a unique milk. Um, No two breast milks are identical. And the milk that she makes is actually influenced by everything about her life, her diet, her environment, what she breathes, what she eats, what she touches. They're all reflected in the milk that she makes for her baby. 
Um, this can be used to discourage women on the grounds that, you know, you don't lead a perfect life or you don't live in a perfect environment. In actual fact, no matter how imperfect her diet or her environment, she still will be making milk that is better for that child than any synthetic processed industrial product heat treated multiple times could ever be. And you quoted a huge amount of evidence that formula milk isn't just um, something that lacks certain things but is actually a mutagen. Yes, there is evidence that um, uh, not having been breastfed leaves you actually with more DNA damage and chromosomal breaks. There's also evidence that it influences the development of reproductive tissue. You can see that by as early as four months in life, there are differences in reproductive tissue development. There are differences in brain white matter development. There are differences right across the board in the bodies of children. And instead of looking for outcomes of studies where we compare mixed groups of children muddled between whether or not they were exposed to formula at birth or not, um, we should be looking at the biology of children. Those MRIs recently done that showed differences in brain white matter development should have been done years ago. The studies that showed more DNA damage and chromosomal breaks should have been replicated many times by now and parents should have that information when in fact they're getting around to making decisions about what they're going to do with their baby after birth in terms of feeding. So how is it that all this knowledge isn't just automatically implemented into clinical practice and the way we care for and support mothers. Because very few people recognise that there is positive damage from formula, not just simply that it creates positive harms because it causes children to deviate from being the sort the, the actual physical body that they would have been. And if you don't recognise that, if you think that it's only a risk that they might develop something, then it seems acceptable because not everybody is harmed by a risk. But if in fact you can say that the microbiome of the artificially fed infant is different from that of the breastfed child, you're saying that that child will develop differently. The trajectory of development that goes on will be different than it should have been if that child had not been so exposed. And it's interesting because industry industry literature now makes this perfectly plain. Most of the evidence I cite actually comes out of industry research. Um, the companies are lowering the levels of protein as fast as they can go because they know perfectly well that exposure to too much protein in that particular age group leads to obesity. And so some of the mothers who are now being blamed for being obese and their children are having problems with weight and so on actually should be looking back to their own childhood and saying, well, I was put on a trajectory that means I've ended up obese. What happened to me is a large part of what's responsible for the problems I'm having now with fertility, with pregnancy, with birthing and with breastfeeding my child. It's not my fault. It is something that has, I'm a victim as much as my child will be. And I do not accept blame from any health worker for being obese. Now, obviously, if you live a life in which you eat nothing but chips and hamburgers, you've certainly contributed to your problem. But there are many mothers out there who've struggled with weight all their lives who are now being blamed for being obese as though they were responsible when in fact they're not. Do you think the industry will ever be held up as responsible for this in a, in a kind of accountable way? 
Well, personally, I think it's not all that far distant before we'll start to see class actions, particularly in the area of the damage done to preterm infants. Necrotizing enterocolitis, for instance, is quite clearly linked to exposure to bovine protein uh, and inappropriate diets in children. The rates in countries where only human milk is fed can be as low as half to one percent of children, whereas in many countries it's accepted that the use of fortifiers and the use of preterm formula um, is um, resulting in rates that actually are around um, five to seven percent of all preterm infants and of course about 20 to 25 percent of those children die so there are children dying in developed western countries in our preterm units or being seriously damaged brain damaged having sepsis and meningitis um, for no other reason they would still have had their problems as preterm infants but in actual fact had they been fully exclusively human milk fed they would not have developed these sorts of problems the scientific evidence for that i think is quite categorically clear and i believe that it won't be too long before some um, lawyer a class action lawyer starts to see that this is a winnable case i think it would only take one one such class action before people started to realise that infant formula is a risk to their child that is too great for them to take. That will certainly be a culture changing. It is and that's part <laughs> of the problem. The reason that we don't accept this information, we don't want to know this information, is quite simply we've structured a society in which we've made it almost impossible for women to succeed at breastfeeding as they should. Without structural support and changes in society, women try to breastfeed, fail and then become bitter and disillusioned and sad about it. They become depressed, they feel bad about themselves, they start to blame the very people who are trying to help them, the breastfeeding advocates who could actually help them for their problems, not realising that in fact these are the people who, who are doing something, they may not all be doing it perfectly, but they are doing something in a society that is structured to ensure that women actually fail. And I think people need to realise there are major vested interests involved in all of these discussions, not just simply financial ones. I mean obviously a $50 billion infant formula industry does its best to prevent people seeing the issues that it has but also emotional ones the women who failed are turning on and talking about pushing back against the promotion of breastfeeding as though their failure somehow justifies them in wanting to see other women fail as well um, it's sad that this is the way that things have developed but in point of fact it's not surprising because I remember as far back as 1984 talking to a senior food and drug administration scientist in Washington DC and she said oh but you have to understand after the Cho free disaster in which many American babies were brain damaged because of a change to a formula she said after the Cho free disaster we had to reassure American parents that formula is safe because American society depends on bottle feeding that is the problem. So all of this is in your book, in your well-referenced large book, which Re looks well like an amazing source. Yes, it's about three inches thick, and it's got thousands of footnotes and about 40 pages of bibliography. Um, it, it actually is three books under one cover. The first is the scientific argument for the milk hypothesis to replace the hygiene hypothesis. 
The second book is the actual history and current state and future development of infant formula. That's a historically oriented but scientifically driven book. And the third is, okay, you're a parent, you've got one of these miserable babies that's been produced by generations of damage. What do you do? How do you work out whether the problem is something other than immune disorder or if it is immune disorder? So the third one's a practical book that starts with a questionnaire. And immensely useful for health professionals, anybody working with women. How can people get hold of it? Well, it's available from Amazon and Book Depository, who make a very substantial profit on it. Of course. (laughs) Um, And it is also available through La Leche League Great Britain, where some of the uh, cost at least helps to support breastfeeding in this country. They have a bookstore. Um, In Australia, it's available directly from the author, and that is what helps fund the many copies that get given away here in the UK to the British Library and the UK Parliamentary Library, if you need to go and source a copy to look at. Thank you. So the book's called Milk Matters and it's by Maureen Minchin with whom I have been talking. Thank you so much. Your your book, um, The Politics, no, it's, that was Gabrielle Palmer, your book. Okay, so that was uh, Maureen Minchin recorded in Reading a couple of weeks ago. I love the birds in the background, Karen. <laughs> no, I do. I think it li- I like it. Adds a bit of ambience. So one thing she said that was um, somewhat relevant to a previous episode is that perhaps before people rush into vaginal swabbing, we really need to ensure it isn't the feeding that affects health and development. Yeah, well, her book is testament to the fact that there is a weight of evidence for breastfeeding in the in the context of the microbiome. You know, we're not diminishing uh, the potential importance of you know, vaginal swabbing for women that have cesarean section. We're just acknowledging the the embryonic nature of the research, really, and the emerging nature of it. Uh, for me, we should be, I should be focusing my attention on skin to skin and longevity of breastfeeding and early initiation of breastfeeding. For me, you know, I did an interview with the Voice of America for Father's Day last week, and it was all on breastfeeding. And of course, their cultural pressures around public breastfeeding are maybe a little bit more intense um, than than ours. I got into a discussion with the interviewer, whose name escapes me at the moment, about taking breastfeeding outside of a moral discussion. You know, we've spoken about that before, yeah. uh, about how belief in evidence uh, if we're not holding evidence as something to be tested, if we're believing it, it can our attitudes can almost unconsciously morph into a sort of like a moralistic position. If you don't breastfeed, somehow you're making a moral choice, which is bad for your child. You know, I think we would benefit by taking the whole discussion outside of a moral framework and maybe even have a utilitarian type attitude, which is uh, what works and what doesn't. You know, look at the evidence, what works and what doesn't. Then we need to maybe even take a bigger view. So what works over time and what doesn't. And if we look at the feeding evidence in that context, what works and what doesn't over time, well, then, you know, breastfeeding wins hands down. You know, it's just about what works. Um, And for me, that kind of diminishes a little bit of this moral intensity that we have around the discussion. See, I don't think that you need the evidence of anything to make a moral judgment about it. If you listen to individuals, they're not saying science says this. They're just saying it's the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever. And to me, it's much more about taking the discussion away from individual mothers 
and asking for a public health system that supports breastfeeding as well as promoting it. Yeah. Um, and that can discuss it in a non-emotive way that doesn't polarise people. Um, I don't think it's about individual mothers and I don't think it's about even about those of us who are out there doing the supporting, the breastfeeding counsellors, lactation consultants, the peer supporters, the ones who get lambasted in the press for pressuring women yeah. who for the vast majority of time are not pressuring women because all we're really aiming to do is try and improve someone's experience, help them to reach their own goals. Um, it's that the, the, the political discussion shouldn't be at that level. No, it should be at a much higher level. I think you're right. Seeking to, to bring about over time a, a cultural shift, you know, so that because let's be honest, most of the pressure that people feel uh, has built up over maybe generations of experience around the choices that people have made about how they feed their baby. You know, now we're almost considering breastfeeding as a as a sort of like an a, something you do if you're lucky to be able to do it. Yeah, it absolutely seems to be perceived as about luck on an individual yeah. level. Yeah. And the messages in society seem to be about that too. The adverts you see on the telly, the pictures of the beautiful babies, and it's it's you know you're lucky if you have this beautiful ideal. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, you know, the, the formula companies have a vested interest in shaping the cultural narrative. I mean, I saw on telly only the other night a formula feeding advert, which must violate some code, although I'm sure they're sneaky enough to get around it. Uh, but at the bottom, it says uh, formula formula that's been informed by 30 years of breastfeeding research. But that's true. And that's one of the things Maureen Minchin was saying is, is that, um, you know, all the information, you know, the, the data that she gets often comes from the milk industry. They are doing the research. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. have the, the knowledge. It's just not in their interests to implement it in a way that we agree. Well, with. no, absolutely. They're doing they're doing the research like the tobacco companies did. You know, the tobacco companies were aware of some of the implications to health of what they were peddling to uh, to human beings. But then if you look at kind of um, the tobacco industry, as, as you brought it up, how long did it take us to turn the, a cultural view around on tobacco? There is a there's a social change in that you, there are places where it's no longer acceptable to smoke. Yeah, true. Everywhere. Right. So... There has been, and I'm not saying that exactly the same rules should be applied to formula feeding. What I'm saying is the same weight yes. needs to be put behind making cultural change. Yeah, but you see, there's no short-term money in it. There's no short-term money in stopping people smoking. Yeah, true, true, true. And and maybe those long-term arguments are beginning to be made in the context of smoking. And we can have optimism and hope that that is beginning to happen in the context of... of um, can I tell you about a talk um, at the ABM conference from Gillian Weaver, who um, is linked with the uh, Association of, of Milk Banking in the UK, the the UK AMB. Is, is that how, how big is milk banking in the UK, Karen? Well, um, in the world, there are 520 milk banks. Is that all? Yeah. In England, there are 13. 13 milk banks in England. How do they work? Um, well, the, some of them are kind of national and some of them are regional, um, but in, in, in the world. But in England, they tend to serve just individual hospitals and people will donate the milk. It'll be kind of mixed together and heat treated. And then um, 
it's made available for some sick and premature babies in those hospitals worldwide Go on. in norway all sick and premature babies have access to donor milk wow well what are the implications for heat treatment I, i'm guessing it's because of eradicating any pathogens, pathogens yeah. yeah so what are the implications for heat treatment does it have an impact on the constituency of the milk yeah, it's likely to sort of affect the some of the nutrients and other live properties of the milk, but it's still breast milk. Right, got it. Which means that it's still an, an appropriate food for a sick or premature, or for, let's face it, any other baby. Yeah, and we, and we have a heritage as the human animal we, uh, of wet nursing, so... We do that, yes. And there's also a lot of informal milk sharing, which is an interesting discussion to have. What? There's, an, there's quite a network of people that informally share milk between mothers who are lactating yeah so you know on a sort of local level sisters friends people might feed each other's babies or give each other a bottle of expressed milk but there's also sort of a more national thing there's the facebook group for human milk for human babies there is a new non-profit initiative being set up in hertfordshire to serve the southeast which will hopefully develop into a national service i certainly don't hear much about informal milk milk sharing and and it may well be because of the underlying cultural narrative it's something people maybe feel uncomfortable talking about maybe you just don't follow the right twitter feeds ah that's it i tend to see quite a lot of it going on um but interestingly you know this this whole idea of human milk for human babies i I sometimes take milk to an antenatal session cow's milk for the teas and coffees in a flask right in a not in a milk carton and about 50% of the time, somebody will make a comment or ask me or sniggeringly joke to their partner, I wonder what kind of milk that is. Yeah. Why would it be weird? <laughs> yeah. There was a, a peep show clip on Facebook. Maddie linked it, I think, um, where... Have you ever watched Peep Show? Yeah. Um, where Jeremy takes some of Sophie's breast milk out of the fridge and puts it in the coffees and... Yeah. Um, they have a discussion. I think, what did he describe it as? Luxury milk from the human cow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the proper premium best milk you could drink. I thought that was great. There yeah. should be more of that. Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's testament to the job that formula companies have done on us, that that we have these reactions to the idea of drinking uh, a, a woman's milk. Yeah. You know, in my all male groups, uh, birthing for blokes groups, we talk about breastfeeding. Often, uh, the reaction you get is one of, well, you don't like the sound of that. And that's testament, really, I think, to uh, the work that formula companies have done in shaping the narrative. If that conversation ever comes up for me, Antonitely, the um, I, I suggest people go and Google breastfeeding in Mongolia. Yeah. Why? Why? Have you ever tried that? No, I'm going. Ah, uh, that you should do that. Breastfeeding in Mongolia. Yeah, that's a challenge for all listeners who've never done this before. Go and Google breastfeeding in Mongolia. See what comes up. Okay, you're not going to tell us, are you? I think you should do a little bit of research. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm doing it. I can't multitask, so I'll talk to you for the. No, I'm not suggesting you do it now, but um, <laughs> it's just a, a little take-home project for anybody listening. Yeah. So shall we listen to these interviews? I've, I spoke to Emma Pickett, chair of the um, Association of Breastfeeding Mothers, who arranged that amazing conference, and also Sarah March, who is a lactation consultant who lives locally to me. Um, so I've got interviews with them coming up now. The moment 
Emma Pickett. I'm the chair of the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers and uh, IBCLC in London. And the queen of all of this. No. I am. <laughs> um, how is it going today? It's good. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even the first speaker you can see is really sparked people thinking and talking. Someone who's been an electric league leader for decades just came up to me and said, "Gosh, I'm really I'm thinking differently about my group now. I realise why my group works." That's interesting. And I, and I realise that I am creating that safe space that women don't get elsewhere. And I am doing that you know, proxy village that existed a thousand years ago. And I think she sort of subconsciously knew that already, but I think she's realised that. Her group is not about giving information about breastfeeding it's about letting other women support other women and yeah the relationships yeah yeah I, I was reflecting on the same thing for my peer supporters during Heather's talk just now as well You've got lots of different people from all the different organisations. It's yes, very cross-pollinated. Yeah, one thing that's nice about the, the ABM conference is we get, we're already a sister organisation with the Breastfeeding Network because we do the National Breastfeeding Helpline together. So we've always got the Breastfeeding Network here. But I think Pam's prize has brought more La Leche League members here because we've got a lot of nominations for La Leche League leaders. And we had done that. Heather was an NCT breastfeeding counsellor. Yeah. So we, you know, it's always been quite multidisciplinary. If that's, if that's the right word. I think I pronounced that wrong. Um, but I think that's true of the breastfeeding world generally because you know, yeah. everything is so stretched. All the voluntary organisations realise we've got to get together to make stuff happen. Oh, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, so it's just like the APPG and, and the World Breastfeeding Trends Initiative, and you know, we've all got to get together to get stuff going. Yeah. So. Thank you. Okay. So this is Sarah March. Who are you, Sarah? What do you do? Okay, I'm an independent midwife and a lactation consultant and tongue tie practitioner. And you had something to say about tongue tie? Um, yeah, I did. And what was the um, what it was was that we have a large amount of mums coming to our breastfeeding group who um, complain that the tongue tie has either been missed or not even checked for. Um, and we sometimes have a really tough decision because those mums come to us and they're looking for. Um, an answer and sometimes tongue tie you know isn't even on their radar it's not even something that they've even thought about and we have to promote you know we have to give that information to them um, but on other occasions they have known about it they have asked for the tongue tie to be checked and um, it has apparently either been checked for or they've been fobbed off and, no, and said no actually we don't, we don't do that or it won't cause a problem it's only a minor one it's not going to cause an issue and, and my, my thing that really um, annoys me about that is actually that's, a, that's somebody just with very limited knowledge not really giving a mum the full picture and I think it's so much better if that person was to say look I'm not a specialist if you're worried about tongue tie go and get it checked by a specialist or um, I can have a feel in the baby's mouth for you I'm not sure what it is go and see someone rather than say blanket no it's only a little one it shouldn't cause you any problems what ideally they should have is yes it's there there's something there I can't tell you whether it's going to cause a problem or not here's a list of symptoms to go away with and if you have any of those symptoms then go and get it checked out and I think that's the that's the thing and then those mums that then come and they have their information and they may decide to have a tongue tie released or not um, 
and then the, the NHS sit on their hind legs and say, oh, don't we do a fantastic job this year? And mums don't because they're grateful that the baby is well and they're grateful that the baby is now feeding and everything is now fine. They And they're busy with a new baby. They don't put pen to paper and write back to the hospital and say, actually, this isn't this isn't good enough, you know, and this isn't, um, the, the help that I got wasn't what I needed. And the hospitals need to know that because they really do sit back and say, oh, what a fantastic job we've done. We've only got this amount of complaints this year. And it, 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 they need to know, they need to know that that has to change. And it won't change unless women get together and raise the issue. If they had hundreds of hundreds of tongue ties that I've seen come through my clinic if every single one of those mums wrote to the local hospitals and said this service I got wasn't good enough something would have to change and that's and that's my it sounds like thing. you feel like it's us out in the community doing the breastfeeding support that are basically doing the work that could be done within the hospitals uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and, it, and it's not anything really to do with the lack of not wanting to do it it's it's to do with the training and the training that those midwives and healthcare professionals receive. I, I, I will admit my breastfeeding training as a midwife was one morning of PowerPoint presentations. We didn't even get dolls out to have a practice. And that, you know, you've got mums that are sitting there vulnerable. And as a midwife, you're told this um, this mum is incredibly vulnerable. She's incredibly at risk of postnatal depression. She's at risk of this, that and the other. Yet one of the biggest factors for postnatal depression is wanting to breastfeed and not succeeding because somebody hasn't been able to help you yeah. to get to that point. And it can be just something as simple as tweaking the way the baby goes on or actually advising the mum no it's not because you've got red hair you've that you are sore <laughs> it is because you have um you know you have a, an attachment issue with your baby and yeah. whatever that is and actually um if that midwife doesn't have the skills it's not a case of saying i'm really sorry i don't I, you know can't help you any further um, but here's somebody who who can help you and I think it's that signposting thing and yeah. that's what GPs ought to be doing as well you know mum goes to a GP with, with breastfeeding issues they should be saying well, go and see have you seen the infant feeding coordinator at the hospital have you seen your midwife have you seen the local lactation consultant yeah. have you been to the breastfeeding groups not oh well breastfeeding hurts so just kind of get on with it you know which is something that a mum this Thursday just gone said at our group her GP had told and, and that's unethical yeah. you know, it's unethical and, and negligible on that behalf of that GP so and, it, and, and actually when I have mums where the GP has said I don't know the answer sometimes the mum comes back and goes well my GP didn't even know and I said but how good was that GP to admit the limit of their yeah. knowledge to actually say to you I don't know what's going on here but here is somewhere you can go they can signpost you and signpost to a specialist as they would with any with other anything, thing that a general condition they like. would signpost you to a yeah. specialist they don't sit yeah. there and say oh well I'll tell you what have you tried ringing the helpline from somebody who had a heart attack six months ago <laughs> you know they don't yeah. do that so um yeah I think that's kind of my rant thank you very much for your rant <laughs> yeah. 
there was a couple of the people I spoke to at the ABM conference and coming up at the end today we've got another one with Heather Tricky. It was just such a lovely, warm, well-organised, interesting conference. I would definitely be going next year. Um, Have you joined? Because they've got a special offer in breastfeeding week, haven't they? Because it's breastfeeding week. I haven't. I'm going to do that today. So you want to talk about the article from The Guardian. This is a February article about we need a proper strategy in the UK to help support breastfeeding mothers. I'm fairly well read around breastfeeding, um, but I was a bit shocked. UK breastfeeding rates at 12 months are the lowest in the world. That shocked me, Karen. Yeah. If you take the interview that we did with Maureen and what she's extrapolating in terms of health implications, that should be at the top of our health agenda. Surely, <laughs> surely. Yeah, it's like it's like cart and horse, isn't it? Yes, and yet we've got an, an NHS struggling to work within its budgets. Yeah, and more higher breastfeeding rates could have quite a drastic effect on the costs to the NHS of not breastfeeding. Yeah, not to mention my grandchildren's children. Yeah, for generations to come. For generations to come. So, the Lancet article came out in January and I think we did briefly talk about it at the time um, and it, it looked at kind of worldwide impact of um, of breastfeeding or not breastfeeding but it also looked at the incredibly low rates in the UK so global data shows that nearly 80% of newborns receive breast milk and actually in the UK it's somewhere around that but about half of those have stopped by six weeks yeah and those initiation rates we've said before have a lot to do with the audit culture yes you know where initiate you know baby now looks at the breast and they've initiated because we're collecting that data and since there's an increasing um sort of trend towards early skin to skin you have baby at the breast nuzzling away hopefully that does help um, as the evidence shows it does to um, get breastfeeding off to a good start but that'll be the point at which the box is ticked Karen I want to ask you a question then I mean the the article is titled something like what we need a proper strategy yeah well what if you were if you were given right the responsibility of structuring a proper strategy what would be the first three things you would do Support, support and support. Yeah, what does that mean though? It means that I would um, find from magically from somewhere the money to have the, the very earliest um, breastfeeding support that could possibly be available. So right there in the hospital, trained people, not just people who've been on two-day UNICEF courses, but properly trained people who have the experience to be there in those early hours. One-to-one. -one. Yeah, one-to-one -one support right early on. Um, okay. Breastfeeding drop-ins. Um, reinstated across the country yeah and I don't know what the third thing should be um training he would be training for um midwives all right uh, one uh, one last question I'm doing the Jeremy Paxman thing <laughs> you, you speak about properly trained and I take your point what would be the minimum that would constitute proper training for one well, of these one-to-one -one supporters as you heard in the interview from Sarah March just then she's a midwife and she said she had a half a day powerpoint on breastfeeding yeah that would be way less than the minimum. So the UNICEF, is it a two-day course, I think? Yeah, it's a good course. Uh, I've had peer supporters come back, trained peer supporters who have subsequently done the UNICEF course and said, well, you know, I didn't really learn much more no. from that. No. So I would say that something like the 20 hours of training that a peer supporter gets is is probably a minimum. Okay. So, so we're talking 20 hours baseline training with cpd built in with cpd supervision built in yeah that sounds reasonable to me expensive yeah wow 
Now, where can we get that budget from? Oh, yes. How much money are we going to save by increasing the breastfeeding? The challenge with all of these interventions is that they, they do not create an inflow of money in the short term. No, neither did stopping people from smoking in pubs. No, got it. They still did it. Yeah, that's right. Just before we wrap up, Mark, you met Holly McNeish recently. Tell us about that. I did. We were uh, speaking together at a conference. I, I was just breathtaken by the way she, she has taken her experience and turned it into a, a piece of performance art, really. I mean, her just reading her book is worthwhile. Hearing her deliver her own poems and her experience of breastfeeding. And, and um, there's a bit in the poem where she talks about uh, waking up to what she was doing when she was breastfeeding her baby in a toilet. Yeah, and it's very powerful. And in the conference, I mean, I weep very easily, but I it certainly moved me to tears. You cry like a baby. Man. I do. I, do. <laughs> I, like, I like it. I like I've got easy access to my emotional range. We all like it. I, oh, thank you. <laughs> I heard her on um, the Guardian Books podcast and it was really good. And her book is definitely right at the top of my wish list. Yeah. Oh, do you know the title of it? Are we going to put it on the Facebook? Nobody told me. Yeah, it's just powerful. That's the way we're going to start to shift culture is as we shift perceptions. And art has a way of doing that. It kind of breaks us open to a different way of seeing the world. Yeah, definitely so. So what what does everybody think? If you come and talk to us on Facebook or Twitter, we'd love to hear from you. Um, there's a little bit here from Maddie. She's a friend of the show, Maddie McMahon. Uh, you two actually let me listen to interesting people. Unlike mainstream media, where the interviewer constantly interrupts and the guest gets two minutes airtime, you guys allow the luxurious unfolding of the talk true genius she's got away with words that maddie McMahon. well we like her when she calls us a genius obviously um i just find that most of the people we talk to all of the people we've ever spoken to i just want to listen to them yeah so that's what's going on there yeah we also had a nice comment from emily smith she said we i loved your most recent podcast on sex and relationships i thought your discussion with petra was fascinating what really struck me was how some of the reasons you discussed for people's decisions around when they should have sex again after birth was so similar to the reasons people have sex for the first time thank you as ever for such a thought-provoking episode megan stevenson uh she she writes just finished listening to the episode on sleep i'm catching up slowly she says i don't think she means on her sleep karen <laughs> really interesting, particularly like some of the language used by your guest about infants feeling abandoned and therefore giving out distress cries for the mother. Lovely to have it so grounded in a mammalian history. Indeed. So that was um, our interview with Charlotte Russell, wasn't it? And you can, you can find us on Twitter at Sprogcast, of course. So should we mention our lovely sponsor, Pinter and Martin? Um, I wanted to alert you to the listening party they hold every month on the 25th when Sprogcast comes out. They open it up in the coffee shop and play it at Space, so you can go and have a coffee and listen with like-minded people. So that's quite a nice little free event going on there. Brilliant. What endorsements have you got this month, Mark? I've got a book that I'm currently reading. Mm -hmm. It's called Tribe. It's written by a chap called Sebastian Younger, and uh, the subtitle is On Homecoming and Belonging. And he explores the cultural nature of tribal uh, groups and how our Western kind of society has led us away from some of these 
tribal characteristics uh, and into more depression, more anxiety and more angst and more war. He particularly focuses on, he mentions breastfeeding, he mentions co-sleeping, all these things that are at the heart of a tribal system. Uh, you know, for example, that tribal cultures tend to hold their babies 90% of the time. And he makes uh, lots of uh, connections to those differences in those two different systems. And it's a book well worth reading. It's quite a short read. Um, it does get quite graphic when it talks about his war experiences. But the fundamental thrust of the book is about uh, our tribal heritage and how we moved away from it and the implications that that's having on our lifestyle. Right. I have got one other um, my um, program, Birthing for Blokes, uh, is being launched as a video program. Um, it's launching on July the 12th. And um, I'm going to offer a free uh, sign-up code uh, to, to one person, to someone who comments on our page this month. So anyone who makes a, a comment, uh, please put in brackets, I'd like to, to get a code and we'll do a draw next month. The initial pre-launch, you know, it's £50, so it's it's worth um, getting involved. Yeah, absolute bargain. My endorsement is um, a podcast by Ollie Mann, who is a comedian and radio presenter who I've been listening to on another one of his podcasts, but he has one called The Modern Man with two N's. And he um, became a father in January before his baby was born, he and two other comedians who were um, about to become fathers did a show called How to Be a Dad. And they've done a, a post-baby follow-up, How to Be a Dad Part 2. And um, they discuss their experience, the, these three guys. So it's Ollie Mann, Stuart Goldsmith and Tom Price. It's funny. It's quite moving in places. And it they really get into how these new fathers feel. You should definitely listen to that, Mark. Well, I have, because you've recommended it to me, and I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a, it's a good listen. Yeah. I'm umming and ahhing over whether I would actually play this to dads in an antenatal group. What do you think? I, th I think I would play snippets of it, yeah. They're quite graphic around the birth. I, I probably still would. Um, and, of course, it, it can it can be different. You know, your experience of birth can be different. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things because there are the three of them talking about yeah. it and they do have three completely different yeah. experiences to discuss. So, yeah, yeah, that's my recommendation. The Modern Man, How to Be a Dad Part 2, and it's on Facebook. Brilliant. Right. Well, we're going to play out today with another interview from the ABM conference. This one from researcher and breastfeeding counsellor Heather Tricky. We hope you'll join us for the next episode and for Sprogcast Live on July the 14th. It's free. But book a space. Uh, we'll put a link on the Facebook. If you have any suggestions or comments, please don't hesitate. Get in touch via Facebook and Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Goodbye. And goodbye for me. So I'm talking to Heather Tricky, whose um, talk we listened to earlier on. Um, Heather, could you want to just say who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm um, Heather Tricky. I'm a researcher at Cardiff University, um, and I'm also I also do research for NCT. Uh, I led the development of their um, uh, message policy around infant feeding, um, and I also sometimes I'm a breastfeeding counsellor. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> and your talk this morning was about evidence around peer support, which I found was. very interesting. 
Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were saying this morning? Okay, so I think the uh, there is well, there are several things I was trying to weave together this morning. Um, the first is that the sort of overarching sort of meta thing, if you like, is that. Um, um, there's an increasing consensus now, something we started to think about in NCT about five years ago, but has become increasingly accepted, which is that it's not a good idea to focus um, efforts around health promotion and public health and feeding on mothers um, or, 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 to, or to make that the main focus of, of the intervention. What one needs to do, we, what we have in the UK is an incredible disappointment rate when it comes yeah. to breastfeeding. So we have lots of people stopping feeding before they want to um, and we also have um, uh, people who just cannot concede that this would be a realistic option for them given their um, wider social circumstances and the constraints around those. So, so um, one, of the, one of the difficulties with targeting public health messages towards individual mothers is that we um, are um, colluding with an idea that people have a free choice. Yeah. Um, and really sort of what underlies all my work is the... Um, uh, is, is a sense that actually uh, that's that's not the situation. Um, not that women shouldn't have a choice about how to feed their babies, of course they should, but in order to have a choice to breastfeed that takes quite a lot of enabling and quite a lot of um, uh, structural intervention. So we've made some progress over the last, um, uh, when I say we, I mean the UK has made some progress after, over the last um, 10, 15 years in particular around the health service and around getting most health um, boards and uh, uh, hospitals to work towards what NICE have said as a minimum standard of care. So most hospitals are now working towards a minimum standard of care for postnatal support. So that's fantastic because we didn't have it and I think um, I think it's very hard for us to think historically when we're talking about feeding. I think um, uh, we tend to, tend to come at it as parents at a point in time and to imagine it's always been like that. But if you were to go back um, 20 years into a hospital, you would see adverts for formula everywhere and midwives who had no idea how to support breastfeeding. So we have, we have made progress. But the answers to um, how we um, change the context for people who are making decisions about how to feed their babies cannot reside within the health service and there are two reasons for that one is the health service only touches tangentially on people's lives um, and, and, and the other is that it's concerned with health now breastfeeding um, is something it's an everyday activity it's part of normal life and it's a relationship it's a relationship it's 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 to, it's it happens everywhere or it, it can happen everywhere and in which case it needs to be supported in every context um, so that's that's the one reason why we need to get out there and one 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 reason why um, having safe spaces within communities building up that knowledge and expertise and um, uh, support within sort of uh, people's social networks is so important and that's a, that's something that peer support can help with the other reason why the health service can't uh, do everything we want to do is because of this focus on health now it's in some ways quite helpful for those of us who want more mothers to be enabled to have the ability to make a decision to breastfeed that um, 
the public health evidence um, lines up with that yeah. um, because it means that there is a lever to improve services. Actually, from a rights perspective, and from the point from a fit women's rights perspective, we shouldn't need to argue on the basis of health um, and health outcomes for a context in which we can carry out something which is a normal biological function. We shouldn't need to argue for that context on that basis. Okay? So what I think is interesting again about peer support is that we have access to a wider range of discourses when we're talking about peer supporters. We can talk about emotions and we can also talk about rights um, and extension of rights and, so, and social rights and women's rights and turning to work and facilities at work and facilities in your community and attitudes to breastfeeding when out and about in a way that um, might be understood as important by public health policy but is difficult to get gain a lever on because the main lever for public health is, is the National Health Service. So that's where I see peer support. Yeah. And what I what my talk about was about this morning was that I think our uh, conception of um, what peer supporters are able to do, what the, the sort of the, our understanding of um, the potential of peer support is uh, not being fully realised when we're evaluating um, or um, developing theory about what peer supporters can do. So there's very much a focus on helping individual mothers yeah. to um, have a slightly better experience. Yeah. Um, whereas in fact, peer supporters can do a lot more than that. They, they can provide a social context in which you feel safe or it's normal, where you have an alternative um, discourse and where, um, where you have people who have different ideas you've got another way of uh, another um, group of people to call on to give you that story and the other thing that it can do is it can lead to radicalization or self-empowerment where you um, uh, look to see how you can you become uh, concerned to the extent that you look to see how the context can be changed and that may actually bring you into conflict with that so, so there's yeah. that potential as well it's really just fascinating stuff it gave me loads to reflect on might slightly change the way I um, talk at the beginning of my antenatal sessions, I think, just from and listening that's really to... that's interesting because one of the things um, I, I, I've, I've sort of taken some time out from doing antenatal sessions because mostly I'm doing research at the moment, I just need to get a few things finished, but I had my antenatal sessions are very much informed by this approach. So, for example, I never talk about the benefits of breastfeeding. Um, and when people ask me um, about problems with breastfeeding, I mean, I don't give them a sociology lecture, <laughs> I hope, but I do contextualise it yeah. in terms of um, what happens in Norway, what happens at the top end of the Welsh Valley, and what happens in, in where I teach in Cardiff. Um, and, uh, and make the point that we're not a different species. You know, it is, it, it, you are more likely to be able to breastfeed if you live in Oslo than if you live in Merthyr Tydfil. Um, and that really has very little to do with biology. It has a lot to do with sociology and it has a lot to do with um, commitment really to um, to improving the circumstances yeah. of people to make that a possibility. The other thing I would say on the politics side is I think our um, very polarised debate around um, uh, 
women's rights from sort of neoliberal perspective, which is you know that that uh, um, we uh, you know we should stop telling people what to do and this. Um, focus on guilt and pressure which is a real issue mm-hmm. um, is very much driven by um, a middle class media um, yeah. so the, the, the experiences of a mother who perhaps wanted to breastfeed was perhaps felt or perhaps did receive a lot of pressure to breastfeed and then was unable to um, from a middle class perspective, that story is often told and well told in mainstream media, and it's the story we all imbibe. But it's not the story of women in Merthyr Tidville. No. You know, if you go to Merthyr Tidville and try and breastfeed, well, your health professional may tell you it's the right thing to do. You may intellectually believe it's in the health benefits, but you're not getting that social pressure yeah. to breastfeed. And I think there's something rather odd about the way this discourse has been dominated by um, reference to uh, the experiences of middle-class mothers. Yeah, and the, your um, diagram that you drew at the end where it took the focus away from the individual mother and into, I think you described it as an eco- ecological context. That's right. So, so um, my, what I'm suggesting is that a solution to this polarised debate um, I mean, I think it's complicated. It's obviously more complicated than that. But I think one um, solution to this very polarised debate that we have is that um, at the moment, um, our, because we have this focus on the individual mother, so the individual mother's... Um, so so if we, if we say, we look at this from a health perspective or from a women's rights perspective, um, and, and we say it's all about the health benefits or it's all about women's rights to do what they want with their own bodies, and we look at that from an, an, an individual perspective and look at the kind of messages we ought to be giving to individuals, then that does lead to a very polarised debate. And that's the debate we always and forever have. Every, just time, around in circles. every time there's a health breastfeeding health story, you get a formula feeding mother, a breastfeeding mother, and they'll be asked to pit against each other. I mean, it's just, you know, somehow ignoring the fact that we're all part of the same system. But I think what might be helpful, and I think this is increasingly, I mean, again, it was something NCT was saying in 2011. It's something that um, is now part of UNICEF policy, called to action. It was the, very much the underlying theme of the recent Lancet series on breastfeeding, is that if we can be serious about moving our policy focus from telling individual mothers again and again and again and again and again about the health benefits of breastfeeding and instead focus on what do we need to do to the context in order to make decisions to breastfeed possible in all communities, then that takes away that polarisation. It doesn't eliminate it completely. In, In the end, you are, as a public health body, putting in a preference, you know, you want to yeah. see improvements in the breastfeeding rates. But it's not the responsibility of individual mothers to improve the breastfeeding rates of the UK. It is not the responsibility of individual mothers to improve the breastfeeding rates of the UK. It just isn't. Yeah. It's the responsibility of governments, the health service, communities, and the rest of us, frankly, to make that possible. Thank you very much. <laughs> Brilliant. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. 
This broadcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. This broadcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.